Scuttlebutt, podcast number six. Scuttlebutt, written by Donnie McVeigh, read by Roger Burley, hosted and produced by Leslie McVeigh. Music, Scuttlebutt, courtesy of the composer Chuck Romanoff. Scuttlebutt is a Bertha May production and is sponsored by Portland Media Center. Scuttlebutt is the story of two young men from a tiny community in Casco Bay, Maine, one who went to war during World War II and one who stayed home, and how their dreams of life in the community have changed. When we last left Scuttle, Spermer had an eye-opener experience when he inappropriately commented about Joy's physical appearance to Manly. And now... Part 6 of Scuttlebutt by Donnie McVeigh. See the burly longshoreman showing off his biceps, even and a hauling mighty freighters in and out. All of the town folk think he's quite a guy, except he don't lift a finger to help around the house. Scuttlebutt! Ain't it a shame? Nobody knows, nobody's to blame. The truth ain't pretty, I think you'll agree. Just don't you tell nobody that you heard it from me. There was only one table occupied in Scuttle's only restaurant when the boys entered. Sit anywhere, fellas, anywhere, the waitress yelled. I'm almost done, my supper. Manly broached a subject that they had been avoiding. I've been home two days now, and we haven't talked about lobstering, hardly at all. He looked into his partner's face. You haven't changed your mind about teaming up, have you? Lord, no, I've been right out straight, getting ready to go. Sperma watched Sally, the waitress, disappear into the kitchen and added, We even got Sam working for us, building bows. You know how fast he goes, like a speeding bullet. Jeepers, Spam, we ain't got that kind of money. Least I ain't. Oh, I, we ain't gonna pay him. He's working for the fun of it, you know, Sam. Yeah, he really is something special. Anyway, my family and I are going down east in a couple of days. Probably be gone two, three days. Then I should be ready to go to work. We also gotta do something about getting a boat. Them shedders will be showing up any time. Manley got up and went to read the specials printed on a chalkboard. Wonder how fresh the heron are, he said to himself. The sardines were wiggling this morning. I ain't really hungry, but they do sound good. I'll have a, just a small order, Sally, my girl. Oh, if I was 40 years younger, I'd have hugged you for that, Manley. When he got to the table, there was no sign of sperma. When he came in from outside... Manley wasn't at all surprised to see a couple of girls coming in behind him. Then he was taken aback when he figured out that one of the young ladies who had left for Connecticut was back, but he didn't recognize the other girl. Aren't you going to say hello to your old friend, Ma Manley? Sperma apparently knew her. I'll say hello, but I'd also say, to whom am I speaking? Manley, you haven't seen me for a couple of years. Have I changed that much? It's me, Avis. Gracious, Avis, you have certainly changed an awful lot. And here's Rain also back to see us. 
Welcome back. You probably should not have ordered small if you were feeding half the point. Sally placed a small plate of fried herring on the table. You want ketchup? Well, no one did, so she left. You here to visit your grandfather, Avis? Not so as you'd notice. He don't care much for my family. She picked up a herring and smelled it. Don't they use these kind of fish for lobster bait? Only when they've been salted for a while. These was fresh caught this morning. May I try one? They smell quite good, and I bet they taste better than the fish we get at school. Hmm, lots better. Rain asked, Hmm, why are these fish herring when you catch them and then sardines when you take them from a can? I'd sure like to know. Dand if I know, spoke Sperma. Me neither, from Manly. Speaking of herring, I got to get to bed. Gonna purse some tomorrow morning, right early. For heaven's sakes, it's barely eight o'clock, Manly. Sperma looked at the girls and said, <laughs> he never used to be like that. Manley did get to Falkenham's in time to help with setting the purse seine and hauling it in in the morning until the herring were almost out of water. When they got the fish dried up to this point, the crew and the sardine carrier lowered the large hogshead-sized dip net into the purse seine. If the crewman was skilled at his job, the dip net would be hoisted aboard, filled to the top with tens or, more likely, hundreds of thousands of live fish. The load of fish was swung over the open fish hold in the carrier and a trigger rope pulled, opening the bottom of the dip net. When the wiggling fish landed in the hold, they quickly spread out over the entire hold. Now the other crewman, usually the captain, would throw a large grain shovel of fine salt in a manner that spread salt over the entire fish hold. The instant the salt struck those live fish, they made a dying leap and then never moved again. To see all these fish make their death leap was unforgettable. Three times they set the purse scene until Gordon figured there weren't enough fish in the net pocket to make another set. So they flaked the purse seine aboard the dory, spreading a liberal amount of salt through the cotton seine as they hauled it aboard. The salt was to keep it from rotting. Manley rode the heavily laden dory to their cove. You want a hand taken up the pocket, Mr. Falkenham? I guess not, Manley. A big school of fish laid outside my gear just last night, so I think they'll be invited in again tonight. How about a hand at opening the gate? Well, thanks for that offer also, but I'll only take four or five fathom just before dark and sit there. Hopefully, enough will go in, and when they do, I'll pull myself ashore, closing the gate as I go. The men followed Joy to the house, and they all had warmed-up coffee. What are we going to do now, boys? Speaking for Gordon, he's going to paint the 18-foot dory. Manley stood up. And I'm either helping Dad take up traps or heading down east to visit the natural Moore family. See you in a couple of days, Joy, and good luck catching sardines, Gordon. After Manley left, Gordon looked at Joy as he prepared to row out. He stared as though maybe seeing that his little girl was no longer. Now a lovely young lady stood before him. Without looking, he placed his oars in between the homemade thole pins 
and with his eyes a twinkle said, He's an awful nice young man, you know it. His daughter just smiled. Well, that nearest island there's Manana, and only one man lives on it. I wonder why they call him the hermit. This againly inspired joke. I guess he is quite a character, though. And beyond that is Monhegan, a very popular resort island, though I can't imagine why. They do have awful good lobstering and a lot of white water around the shore. He continued, Hey, I bet that's their ace in the hole. Addis loved to paint action, and a breaker with white water flying is sort of exciting to see. All around the islands is a closed area, and the only people who can fish there are Monhegan residents. Talk about shooting fish in a barrel. Beats me why they only fish in the winter, though. Probably like to suffer, Gainley taught, told himself on his way to the stern. He went aft to sit beside Truly, who said, Isn't it wonderful to have summer weather again? For a while there, it seemed like it would never warm up. Today's actually almost too warm. Gainley was always ready with an answer. That's because we're going fair wind. If we was heading into it, we'd be a shivering. Then let's just keep going this way, Truly joked. How much farther is it? The ocean just seems to get bigger and bigger. And the boat just gets smaller and smaller. He put his arm around his wife. I can't for the life of me figure out why you said yes to me when you could have had any one of them well-off young guys that was thirsting after you. But boy, I'm sure glad you did, with a squeeze of her shoulder and a dry peck on her nose. I just wish we could have had more children, Gainley. Can't imagine what ails me. Or me. I am getting to be an old coot, you know, with another squeeze. And there was that time when Manley had the mumps. That must have been what ailed me. I've heard that could make a fella sterile. A high, bold island appeared to be floating ever higher from the sea. That's rock pound ahead, ain't it, Dad? Manley yelled at. Must be. Nothing else out here. As they made their way into Rockbound Island's best feature, the well-preserved harbor, Ganley was the only one aboard who began to worry. He knew it was strange that none of the lobster boats were in port at this time of year. After they rowed ashore, it was stranger still. Ganley's former home was wide open with an overcooked pie starting to smoke in the oven. Something had to be wrong. They could only pray that it wasn't too bad. Their prayers went unanswered, though, as they discovered when Richie Moore ran by on the path they were following, muttering, He's drowned for sure. But he was gone before they could get any more information. Their trip across the small island continued with sinking hearts. From a hill, it was easy to see a congregation of boats that really could only indicate one thing. Someone was overboard, and apparently, since all the island boats were there, it had been so for quite a while. The person who was standing bent over on the back shore sobbing was Natural's wife, Eloise. Truly took her in her arms and tried to comfort the broken-hearted woman. She was trying to say the right things, though still not knowing who was lost. <clears throat> the boats headed for their home harbor with Eloise's oldest child, Will, leading in his boat, the Why Not. 
It was the youngest son of Eloise and Natural who had been caught in a snarl of rope traps that hauled him under. In two weeks, Sonny would have been 10, and today would only have gone to plug lobsters to help his big brother take up traps. Like all kids, he had been cautioned many times to stay clear of the rope. Just as Will sped the loaded boat up, Sonny had made a grab for the last buoy line that had been forgotten to haul in. He was too late, and the buoy pulled the last trap off the rail. That trap started an avalanche that saw most of the pile of traps overboard in a snarl with Sonny in the middle with ropes wrapped all around him. It took most of an hour to haul up his body. Manley and his cousins, Reverence and Lawrence, who lived with their widowed mother, were down to the beach talking about the drowning. Tragic accidents were never far away when the ocean had its deadly grip. Manley's cousins had been quite young when their father and 21-year-old brother had gone out longlining and never came back. No trace of their strange disappearance was ever found. Rumors persisted for a long time that it was most likely they'd stumbled on a German submarine that didn't want to be discovered. This loss was a while before World War II, and the family had hoped all during the war, if it was a submarine that their loved ones had been taken aboard, he would now be released. But that never came to pass. This drowning was different, but it did dredge up old memories. After a while, trying to come up with something helpful, they decided to dig a grave at the old cemetery. Neither of these big burly men wanted to ask the distraught parents, so the task fell to the 17-year-old reverence. The dead boy's mother just cried harder when asked, but natural, who had overheard the question, said that would be very nice of them. Before they began to dig, Manley fetched his father, Gainley, with a lot of information from Lawrence and found out what looked to be a good location for Sonny's grave with a good view of the cove. It took a grub hoe and a pickaxe to make a dent in the rocky ground. It was hard digging, and they didn't get very far before it got too dark. They planned an early start for the next day. So it was early when Manley got to the burial site the next morning, only to find Lawrence and his sister standing in a slowly growing hole. Good morning, Patnas. Sorry I'm late. Just could not resist having some breakfast. No problem, Manley. We was up early. Just couldn't sleep. They settled down to dig with little talk. But after a while, Manley asked Lawrence about the merchant marines. His digging partner really wanted to tell some of his experiences. And I'd signed on as a wiper on an old coal ship in Bath, and a Negro boy, who was also a wiper, made me feel welcome and invited me to go to a dance and bath. I went with Chris, the wiper, and his buddy, who was a mess cook, who came from Puerto Rico. I guess he was a Negro also, but not near as dark as Chris. They was nice looking, I think, clean, and dressed probably better than me. Well, I danced with at least eight different girls and never got a no. You've seen me dance. You know it wasn't my fancy footwork that got him to say yes. But I watched those colored boys ask many girls to dance, and not one of them said yes. Not one girl in that hall would dance with them, no matter how undesirable she might have been. 
That's my first lesson in all my going fishing about colored people and some of the stuff they go through. Up to then, I guess in my mind, they was just about the same as me, only darker. Chris, my wiper friend, was just barely late getting back to the ship in Newport News, and that was the last I ever saw of him. He was an awful nice kid, and I think of him a lot to this day. He was running down the dock like a deer, and I hollered and waved at him, but I don't think he saw me. He rambled on. This is a funny one. We was loading soft coal like always at the coal dock where the loaded railroad cars would get dumped over when the car got to the right spot and the load of coal would slide aboard. There was a government wharf all ways off the port side with some kind of training ship tied up there. She'd been there a while because I saw her on our last trip. Well, anyhow, it was one of them Norwest days, probably gusting to 35 or so, and you could tell that other ship was pretty darn light the way she was bouncing around. Just as I'm looking, all kinds of these young guys, some in khaki uniforms, the rest in gray, come streaming down the gangway and lining up all along the ship and holding her away from the dock. Must have worked, because there was quite a, that took, that took quite a while. Reverence called down to them that coffee and blueberry muffins were available on deck. They quickly scrambled out of the hold. Are them blueberries from Rockbound Island? Manley spoke with his mouth full, even though his mother had taught him better. They're mostly from Ada's Isle, ain't they, sis? I'd say so. We had very few berries on our island this year, except blackberries. I guess you could find them everywhere. Thank you for these muffins, reverence. They sure hit the spot. The diggers got back to the grave. It didn't have far to go to get to six feet deep, which seemed to be an important number for some reason. They had a private funeral on the island after 16-year-old Benjamin Moore was picked up from Christian's head by his brother Will. He stayed there while attending high school and had just been waiting for a ride home. The original plan had been to take Sonny back to Scuttle, where he would have lived and hauled traps with Gainley for the summer. Now Richie would get the job for the second year in a row. The Moors from Scuttle, along with Richie, left shortly after a natural finished reading from the Bible. We probably couldn't have found a sadder time to visit, but then again, we were here to help a little in a time of need. Truly was trying to perk Gainley up a bit. Sonny's death would have knocked the pins out from under him, and it did. We do know that Sonny is in heaven right now. Gainley, sitting beside his wife, was uncommonly thoughtful. This was something that he'd been thinking about for a long time. I've been worrying a lot about heaven lately. You know that all the great thinkers since the beginning have been telling us people how to get to heaven. Just imagine how crowded that place up there has got to be. If all the people, animals, birds, fish, trees, bushes, and on and on up there, it's just ridiculous. They got to be 10,000 feet deep up there, if there really is an up there. Probably deep on that. Gainley got to his feet, turned around, and sat back down. Sweetheart, even if I do sound kooky, let me tell you, no matter how dumb it sounds, some of my thoughts 
Stuff like that has been rattling around in my head for a long time. There's no question whoever invented heaven had a damn good idea. What else have humans got to look forward to when we depart? What could be as good to look forward to as a perfect life forever after? It is a beautiful dream to put out there for an awful lot of people. He gave his wife a searching look, as if wondering that she was thinking him pretty touched in the head. But her loving look gave him confidence to continue, and so he did. My dear heaven is in people left behind. My idea lives in the hats, minds, souls, and in the love and memories of the people still here. The memories of love and admiration for the dead is my heaven. Every good thought we have of Sonny, though I can't imagine there would be any other kind, is heaven. Every bad thought and memory, like we have for someone like Adolf Hitler, is the bad place. Funny. Makes good sense in my head. But when I say it, it does sound like, hey, they'd ought to send me up to Augusta to have my head examined. Gainley, you are the most lovable man God could find. It's little wonder I can't get over you. Just to think that Gainley Moore is mine fills my heart right to overflowing. You know what the song says about wishing there were more of you so I could love even more of you. Talk about being committed. Manley and Richie were discussing trucks, and the boy was making sure that Manley knew that his big brother Will had an order in to the Chevrolet dealer for a brand new truck when one became available. They were soon past Monhegan Island, and the Seguin Lighthouse could be seen ahead. Do I stare inside or outside that lighthouse? Richie asked. Manley didn't answer right away. They'd been gone three days, and it felt more like three weeks to Manley. He was wondering what Sperma had been up to while he was away. What's that, Richie? Oh, calm as this. I guess going inside is okay, but maybe I better check. When asked, Gainley said he was never quite sure, but that he'd know when he was rich enough to buy one of them machines that shows the bottom and how far down it was. They went inside the harbor without incident, and Gainley put the boat on the mooring while Manley hauled out the punt and bailed it, and that really hadn't seemed to be hardly leaking at all. The sun was just setting in the west-northwest, much as everyone wished it wouldn't. The longest day of the year, now only a fleeting memory, a fickle sun was slowly accelerating for its long southern vacation. Before the moors got up to the house, Sperma came in by Enlister's truck with Avis and Rain perched in the front seat. When Manley refused to ride, a not very happy Sperma issued an ultimatum. You would better pick me up at 3.30 then. That's before daylight, you know, Sperm, he said. Well, and took off with a roar. The next morning, Manley stopped by Sperma's path, expecting to have to wait a while but he was pleasantly surprised when the complicated one came out of the dark. I'm guessing we are off to a baby shower, a birthday party, and that's why we need such an early start. Am I right? <laughs> With a chuckle, Sperma said, we are to pick up some cedar logs that we swap for even with them fellers. They parked on a little used road with a lot of backing and filling. 
This looks like the place I stored them, said Sperma as he plunged into the deep woods. Wisely, he had a flashlight, and he kept it aimed at the ground. In a couple of minutes, they found the pile of dark bark-covered logs. What did you swap for these, Spam? Manly knew the answer would be a cocker, and true to form. It was pure sperma. I swapped some spruce average in eight inches against one six-and-a-half-inch cedar, plus a five-gallon bucket of slightly used motor oil and a half-full five-gallon bucket of a bit more used oil that was fuller than when I started. I'd spilled just a little. He wanted to keep talking. I even showed those guys how to treat the pad of the log that was going in the ground. And just how did you show them dummies how to do that? I gave them not one, but two perfect samples that even, um, as you call them dummies, should be able to figure out. Ten round trips with a cedar log on each shoulder finished the pile. One last trip picking up all the cedar bark they could find, and then they got into the truck. The truck went about ten feet and died. With both having some experience with engines, though, they expected to get going soon. But it didn't. It ain't no problem, Manly. We just lug them back where they was. But Manly wasn't so sure. Now we should dump the logs back where we got them. Piled so they dry out better. Sperma clued him in. Manly just stared at his partner with suspecting eyes. But Sperma couldn't see the look in the darkness. Finding the cedar logs easy to peel, they stripped each log as they unloaded the truck. Sperma said, We let them logs dry for a few days. Won't hurt a thing. Probably actually be a help. Before lugging the bark up, Manley gave the truck another try, and surprisingly, it started right up. The early July sun was shining brightly when they stopped at Sperma's. Why don't we throw that back on the side of my path? Then I can take some up to my house every time I go by. It'll make the finest kind of kindling, you know. While unloading the truck, Manley brought up a new subject. Spam, what are we going to do about a boat? We sure can't go lobstering without one. Well, I've done been looking high and low and can't find anything that will float, Sprimmer professed. So what would you think of a trip to Portland? Take a look around there. See if we can't find something. Right on, partner. Sperm loved the idea of Portland. Scuttlebutt, ain't it a shame? Nobody knows, nobody's to blame. The truth ain't pretty, I think you'll agree. Just don't you tell nobody that you heard it from me.